there's nothing more important than understanding the user, right? Like that is the most critical thing. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward Silence. Silences. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. We are here today with Elise Bogas. She is the VP of Product Design at Endeavor. Uh, she also has extensive experience at Drift, RunKeeper, and she's an adjunct professor of product design, uh, teaching seniors at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design. So she knows a thing or two about product design, and today we're going to talk about how do you use passive data tools such as full story and complement those with your user research to get a fuller picture of what's going on with your user and of course to design products to uh, make them very, very happy. So thanks for joining us today, Elise. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Got JH here too. Yeah, I've never really actually been in an organization where uh, we took good advantage of tools like this. So I'm super excited to hear stories about, um, you know, how they can be deployed and, and what you can learn from them. Get the full oh, yeah. story. <laughs> oh, look at that. <laughs> but I'm got to get those sound effects going. Yeah, I mean, I so I'm kind of accidentally a early employee um, at a lot of the companies that I've been at. And, you know, when you're super early, you don't have a whole lot of customers. Uh, mm. And if you do, mm -hmm. they that you wear out access to them pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, tools like, you know, full story and, and hot jar and in those types of, um, kind of passive tools are a really good supplement, right. To the actual user conversations, um, that I found. So I would consider them essential, right. To any part of like a user testing toolkit, right. Even at, you know, small or large companies. Just get the landscape. Like, are those the two main players? Those are the two I always hear of full story and hot jar. Are there other ones that kind of fit in this space at all? Yeah. I mean, like, so Crazy Egg does some sort of uh, session replay and I think they do optimization. I think they're, I feel like they used to be known for A-B testing um, and that's evolved a little bit. Um, there's also like things that you wouldn't like think of as like passive feedback collectors, right? So like when I was at Drift and, I, and I've seen this done on other websites a lot more lately, like sentiment polling is something that we're used to, right? Like if you have a conversation with a rep, um, you get like this little poll that's like, how was your conversation? And there's like an emoji from like, you know, really angry to like super happy. Um, but at Drift, we used to use our own tool all the time, right? So like, and I've seen more companies kind of building out bots on live chat platforms, not just for customer support, but to kind of be a part of either a new feature rollout, or if you're using like a new part of the service, like a bot will kind of be like, hey, how is that going for you? And maybe if you engage, it'll ask you a few follow-up questions. Um, I've also used bots as a way to build user testing, like opt-in pools, which is super useful, right? And kind of a lot nicer than having to email a bunch of people and be like, hey, I'm Elise, and this is why you should care about anything that I'm saying. Um, can I bother you further for like 30 minutes in the next couple of weeks? Um, with bots, you can kind of set that up and let people opt in automatically and then kind of remind them when you reach out via email, like, hey, like you said you would do this thing. Any chance I can grab some of your time? Nice. So how long have you been working with tools like this and how did you sort of get started figuring out 
how they can be useful. Cause I, I know for me there it's like there's what's going on with these heat maps and just like figuring out how to actually use these and make sense out of them can be a little bit of a, a, a learning curve. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you see heat maps being used more so mm-hmm. on like marketing websites or like single page web apps. Um, so I got started using these things probably like maybe six years ago, six, six, seven years ago. Um, and full story was actually like a, a game changer kind of in the early days of drift. So we had no customers, um, and we were working to get customers like every step of the way. And we were super, super early. It was literally just when we were building the live chat, um, portion of the product, there's nothing else to it. And sort of what we found is either we had people that we talked to all the time, right. And became kind of kind of right. either biased or, they, you know, super fan customers like end up not being like really good target user testers because they have all of these like power ideas or like they, they get really excited about like mm-hmm. telling you what you want to hear. Um, so when you're super early, like either no one wants to talk to you or the people who do want to talk to you, you like you wear them out very, very quickly. I think about like access to users as you get like a set amount of tokens per user Maybe let's say it's five, right? And passive tools like Full Story let you hold on to those tokens a little bit longer. So when we implemented Full Story into the product, we really focused on using it for like onboarding. Um, and we would spend time during lunch, like reviewing, like it would be like story time, right? We would all sit around with our lunches and in, and instead of talking, we would queue up some full story sessions and we would watch those. And it's kind of a nice way to surface certain things that um, you wouldn't otherwise know through any types of like data warehousing. Like you're not going to know that somebody got a little tripped up like on your copy mm-hmm. if you're just looking at like mixed panel data. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think the biggest indicator is when somebody is like trying to use something and you're watching them like not be able to use it. And you're like, you're sitting there and this anxiety is building. You're like, Oh my God, I designed this thing. And this user is having a really hard time with it. This is surfacing like, okay, this is something I need to revisit. So it helps you build a list and some of the things maybe you can address right off the bat, but sometimes you need to be able to say like, okay, here's a list of things that I saw that are, are kind of interesting sticky spots in this version of the product or this area of the product. And now I'm going to reach out to users who I know have recently interacted with that interface. And I'm going to kind of ask them about these specific things because, you know, conversations just for the sake of conversations with customers can be uh, really kind of all over the place and you can go into a rabbit hole very quickly. Are you, um, uh, when you're using full story, you're finding people who are, you know, having issues. Are you literally reaching out to those same people or looking, using other data sources to find people who have used those features? Well, I, I, I think it depends. So it, it depends on like the sensitivity of like the area that right. they're working right. in. And, and luckily, like, so obviously like at Endeavor, we're in the FinTech space. So like some of these things are a little bit more sensitive um, and we really want to make sure that we're protecting people's privacy and data. And we're going to be using like the privacy screening features on those. So we won't actually be able to see real like metrics mm-hmm. inside of people's accounts. Um, but if, if it's something like an onboarding, right, like full story surfaces, those users. And if it's a registered user, you have their information and you mm-hmm. can reach out to them directly and you can do it yeah. right in a non-creepy way. You don't need to reach out to somebody and say like, Hey, I was watching your session. Right. No, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah. How do you get from yeah. A to B? Yeah. 
Well, so normally what I'll do is I'll is I'll put together like a list of users who I think would be good, right? And and you guys know this with user interviews, like you reach out to, you know, 50 people and maybe only 20 respond and maybe only 10 agree to talk to you. And then maybe out of those only eight show up, right? Something like that. Um, so I'll make a list of people who have been in that area. And sometimes it's, you know, it's really easy to do it with full story. A lot of times, like I'll just ask, you know, like a backend engineer on my team to be like, Hey, can you, can you pull a list of emails for users that have done like X, Y, or Z? Um, and with like some simple SQL, right. We can get that list. And then I just, I send an email and I just, Mm -hmm. and I hope they book some time. Um, and a lot of times people do, especially if they have a hard time with something, they want to talk about it and they want to feel acknowledged, right? And they want to know that someone is listening to their pain and uh, and hope that that person is able to fix it. Mm. Have you found a benefit of like watching these sessions, like the way you described hanging out and eating lunch and kind of going through these replays, is that there's almost like some motivation or urgency created within the team to fix issues that you observe? Because for me, when I've like played around these tools, you know, like uh, to your point about like the quantitative data of, you know, 10 people hit this onboarding flow and four of them dropped off. It's, it's hard to like, for me, like to, to get like developers or, you know, designers like excited about like four people. That's a lot. Whereas like when you watch like one session of somebody like stumbling around the screen and like clicking and really like not getting it, there's something about that that just like creates this feeling of like, oh man, we got to fix this. This is like really bad. Is there a piece of that that like, is it play here? Oh my God, Absolutely. Right. So like there's nothing more important than understanding the user. Right. Like that is the most critical thing. And I think like sometimes we we kind of disadvantage um, like our engineering colleagues by like not bringing them along for the ride mm-hmm. when we're doing user interviews. Right. Like they don't get an opportunity sometimes to actually like see the pain that the customer has. They just have to take my word for it. And, you know, that, that really only goes so far. So w- when you're watching, like, and you have like all your whole team and your engineers kind of like sitting around and you're eating lunch and you're watching these things, like the people who aren't normally exposed to users, even though they're building the software, like they start to understand and they're like, oh my gosh, like that's horrible. And also like, this is an easy fix. Like I can spend 20 minutes and I can get this fixed. Um, and it's a really way to kind of get these small things just kind of sorted out very quickly without, you know, this whole like added to the backlog, right? Because, you know, backlog is where things go to die. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I remember very cringy to watch. And is it pretty obvious to everyone in the room, like what's sort of happening? It, you know, like rage clicks or just frustrated or, oh, no, they can't figure it out. Is that all kind of obvious? I'm imagining because we're eating lunch, you know, like we're mass like spitting out our food. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was terrible. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I think it's funny, like mm-hmm. sometimes yes, sometimes no, um, which is why, you know, the sometimes no, like you need mm-hmm. to kind of file them away and follow up because like there's there's certain things like, right, so I think about like levels of user testing and and this is kind of relevant when you have, you know, so at Endeavor, right, we have that, that really hard um, persona um, that's tough to get FaceTime with, right, because they're super busy, um, they're kind of doing a bunch of different things. They're either a professional or there's some kind of like executive, right? There, there's someone whose time is super, super valuable and they're not going to, I don't want to waste any of my tokens, right? With those people, those are super, super valuable. So the way I think about like certain levels of user testing is there's like a range. 
usability is kind of like the basis, right? And kind of humans at any level can decide if something is usable or not. Um, and then there's comprehension. Like, do we understand what's happening in this screen and why? And then there's desirability. Uh, and desirability is something really only like the target audience of your product can give you. Um, but like the other two things, usability and comprehension, you, normally you can assess with like normal individuals um, who maybe like are familiar with your space or have something in common with your user, but like aren't like a perfect user. And then usability is something that I think can really be answered on its own sometimes with full story. So like if we've designed some kind of like, so at Drift, here's a really good example. Um, we were working on this onboarding. I think we designed a, a little like widget that allowed you to like pick a color or a brand color and it would automatically like restyle, like reskin the page as like kind of like a, a first wow moment. Um, and I think we had this like really complicated color picker and people were just having a really hard time using it. And we were watching them like select a color and then like it wasn't saving and it wasn't updating the page. Mm -hmm. So that right two things right there, there's a bug where if someone makes a selection and it's not restyling the page, like that's something we need to fix. And two, like no one's really trying to pick their own color. Like we can probably in the onboarding, just give them like a little palette set mm -hmm. of like six to eight colors and just let them click one. And yeah. that will make it a lot easier. Right. So those are kind of two levels of insight from a usability perspective right. that we don't need to actually talk right. to users about. All right. A quick awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know, what's really fun is doing user research and we want to help you with that. We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free. We all know we should be talking to users more. So we went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it. So get over there and check it out. And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please. So, um, you know, we're bridging these tools with talking to users. When do you talk to users? We talked a little bit about, you know, when you find opportunities and you kind of reach out. Can you talk about some of your, you know, experiences having done that, going from one to the other? I think there's kind of two levels to this. So obviously the first one I've already talked about a little bit um, is someone is struggling in your product mm -hmm. and you can see them struggling and you want to understand why, right? or what they're trying to do. Um, so sometimes reaching out to those users directly um, will get you a conversation, um, but then talking to users in different ways, right? So like sentiment polling, or um, if a user like opts in for a live chat um, session, where like if I, if so we roll something out, for example, and you know, the first couple hundred users that come to it are engaging with it, they might get like a bot pop up that's like, hey, um, how are you liking this so far? They answer, you know, not great. Like that, we want that bot to follow up and understand why. Sometimes they'll reply, sometimes they won't, or sometimes they'll reply with something that's like a little bit cryptic. Um, but there's always value in digging in more, right? So I, I think the goal in those sessions is to be able to like reach out directly and say like, hey, like I, I got your feedback. Like I work on this directly and I want to really understand like where you're coming from and, mm -hmm. and what you're looking for. Like, can I grab 15 minutes of your time? And a lot of times people are really open to that. There, there's really no replacement for having one-on-one -on -one conversations with your user. Um, but I, I think about these tools as sort of like icebreakers. 
um, ways that you can have an easier entry point to having those conversations with your user instead mm-hmm. of just a cold email that they're not expecting or have no context for. Mm. Cool. I, the the big thing with tools like this that comes to mind right away, right, is around privacy in terms of um, how do you let you know users know that this is happening? How do you make sure you're protecting sensitive information? Are there any best practices or um, like things you've seen implemented to do that well? You know, I I haven't seen anyone do this super well, but like I totally agree, especially like with the space that I'm in right now with fintech. Like there needs to be a level of transparency, and I think people need to be able to opt in or out of some of these things. And how that's how we're going to implement that, like, is something that I'm starting to figure out right now. But I I totally agree that privacy is the most important thing. Um, and if you're going to be kind of collecting data on your users. I think, I mean, GDPR is like the new thing, right? Where users can be able to have you delete all of their data right off the bat. I, I feel like we'll probably go towards that a little bit more in the US. But like, so one team that I know does this really well um, is PillPack. And I, I think like their process for this is actually really impressive, right? Because they're a pharmaceutical company, like all of that data, anything that is personal person personally identifiable is like super super sensitive Um, and no one on the team should have access to that so they put together like a really in-depth privacy process where you know any designer or anyone on the team who's like maybe looking at a user account has no idea who that person is um, and there's nothing about that profile that can give that data away but they're able to actually look at real information which is really important right like there's this sort of catch-22 where as a designer or as someone who's working on product, like you want to be looking at real information so that you can make the best choices for um, those circumstances. And if you're looking at fake data, right, like that's not super useful, but we need to protect the privacy of our users. So, I mean, Full Story has this feature where you can go in and you can kind of tag like certain areas. Like if you have a dashboard, for example, you can go and you can tag like metric one, metric two, metric three, um, and it'll screen them automatically. So if you're watching back a session, like you won't actually be able to view those numbers. They'll be kind of blurred out. And it does the same thing with passwords. I think it does the same thing with like any JavaScript snippets that are on the page. Um, There's definitely ways that you can protect a user's identity. And I think that's something that, you know, as designers, we have to, we can't skimp on. That's super important. But I, I think this is still a space that people are figuring out. Here's a flip question. Have you? I mean, have you seen anyone do it really well? Um, I'd love to know. <laughs> I'm on, always on the hunt for examples. No, I ask because it's like it's been a real debate within our team. Um, you know, some of the engineers have been very hesitant to deploy it. Um, we we're in a similar boat of you know we handle other teams' customer information, and so we want to be really careful and protective of that. And so, um, you know, some engineers have been really like you know this is like essentially almost like key logging, like we don't, we're not comfortable with this. And then other people are much more on the other side of the camp of like, this is so helpful and we can improve the experience so dramatically. Like, um, and how do we strike the right, the right balance? Um, I think it's something we'll can do further. I know full story, I think has some options now where like you can prompt consent from the users before the screen recording kicks in. And like to your point, you can hide fields and stuff. So I think if you get it configured, right. Mm -hmm. Um, you can kind of strike the right balance, but, uh, we haven't had enough time yet to dig in and like actually, you know, make sure we resolve all those issues before we, uh, before we move forward. Yeah. I mean, I think 
this like this all kind of kind of pulls back to trust right with your users and if your user mm-hmm. I, I mean you guys have a lot of technical users i've worked on products that have a lot of technical users and if you just kind of right click and inspect you can see the full story snippet installed in the header and if like if me as you know a company if we haven't let you know that that's happening like you might be like what like why are you recording my information and you might like trust might be broken. Uh, so how this is handled, I feel like is it always needs to err on the side of over communication. Yeah, it is tough. And I do think that these, um, sort of privacy and user experience trade-offs are only going to become, you know, more complex and plentiful, right. As GDPR and other regulations tick up. And as at the same time, companies attempt to know their users better and become more, you know, customer obsessed. Um, you know, are the pervasive, hey, we use cookies helpful for, um, you know, privacy, um, transparency, or are they just a really annoying user experience or are they both? And do those, you know, sort of notifications have buried within them, if you actually click through to the privacy policy, do they divulge, you know, hey, we're using false story. Hey, we're doing X, Y, and Z. I mean, you could just imagine to make fully transparent every sort of script or technology that's potentially a privacy concern. Um, how do you how do you actually get that through in a way that isn't like, <laughs> right, a thousand pop-ups with every technology that we're using on our website, right? Um, I think there are interesting questions, like how do you let people know? How do you know what they care about? And I do think there will be more like sort of UX research on this question, right, of understanding what do users, you know, forget about the European government, right? That's regulation. But like, what do users care about? What do they want to know about privacy and how do they want to know about it? So that hopefully you can kind of thread that needle of delivering a great user experience while, while keeping people's privacy top of mind and letting them know what's going on. It's a lot to, it's a lot to do at the same time. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is so nuanced and I think like your point about cookies, I think as users kind of across the board, right? Like we, we accept cookies. Like we know that, you know, most sites have them. Um, And I think we know that, you know, most sites are tracking our movements, like in a logging perspective, but I think where we get really weird, weirded out, and this is just because the technology is new, right? Full story, it's screen, um, it's not screen recording, right? So just make sure that that's clear. It's session replay where they like recreate it. I think with, um, I think they recreate everything with like JavaScript. They're not, it's not like they're recording your screen. But it's really weird, you know, when you're talking to your friend about something and then like later in the day you get served like an Instagram ad, like this whole like video voice technology that's starting to track users is like, it's kind of creepy, right? Because it's new and we're adjusting and like we've already adjusted to cookies and kind of like the broader tracking. Um, But like if like the voice tracking is really is really weird because you're like as a user, you're like, oh, my gosh, like. Can I just talk openly without worrying about, you know, like Facebook or Instagram listening to me? Um, but at the same time, like I, I, I recently was on, uh, I follow a lot of like female entrepreneurs on Twitter. And, and there was this thread that was in conversation that was starting to happen around the idea that um, I think someone uh, revoked all data and now they're getting served like 
totally random ads that they don't can't care about and are not personalized to them. So it's like, you know, where is the balance? Like we want to see things that are personalized and relevant to us to like make our lives a little bit easier and discover things that are interesting. But at the same time, we don't want anyone tracking us. So, I mean, this whole, this whole thing is super nuanced and I'm, I'm really excited to see how it unfolds. Um, and one of the things that I talk about in, with my students, right, is like, how do you make sure you're moving forward in an ethical way with everything that you're doing? Like if, if you're asking a user to connect their bank account to your app, like you need to explain why. If you're asking a user for this permission, you need to explain why, right? You can't just be asking um, with no context. Like if, if you need someone to give you, you know, permission to your contacts, you know, the reason is like, oh, it's easier to add your friends this way. It's a better experience. Like whatever that reason happens to be, you need to make sure that the user understands this. Right. And then mm-hmm. do that and not do some, <laughs> yeah. obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then actually, yes. And then actually do right. that and not do something right. else. Do you guys want to know my, um, my big prediction is that there's going to be a huge privacy scandal at some point around browser extensions. Hmm. Cause you basically give them permission to see like everything in your browser and your internet. Um, and people just do it passively. And I think there's going to be one that comes out eventually that's like, oh, this like innocuous browser extension has actually been doing like really shady stuff. And it's going to be like a big thing. That's my prediction. Oh, wow. Well, you know, what's really funny is like I like I was having this conversation with a coworker about the Honey acquisition to PayPal. And really all they're buying, right, is the data. They're not buying like Honey as a tool. They're like they're buying like the they're probably just buying them as a data yeah. set is is my thought. Um, but I, I think that's probably right, John. I kind of nervous for who it is. I hope <laughs> yeah, I don't have it installed. Cool. Um, a question, just to go back a little bit. Um, you know, you mentioned like we, wa- you watch these things during lunch, you see something that's really, you know, cringy teams motivated, maybe a quick fix goes out and that, that's a really like satisfying loop. Um, but the other part, right. Of like product and design and fixing things is there's sometimes issues you encounter that are lower priority and you're like, Ooh, this wasn't great. Um, I want to log this so we can revisit it, but like, we can't fix it now. Um, what do you do with like the session replay? Do you like have like a library of ones like, Hey, this is where somebody hit, hit a, you know, an issue with this feature when we are going to prioritize fixing that, like, here's all the stuff we can go back to, or is that not really a part of it? Well, the way I think, so I have a Trello board that I keep certain things in it, but the way I think about stuff is if it's a real problem, it's going to resurface multiple times, right? It's not just going to go away. If it's a real problem, it's going to keep coming back. So it's going to come up again. So like I might stick it in a Trello board, but honestly, like I I feel like if it's something that is either something we're going to work on within the next couple of weeks, or it's something that, you know, it, it's not really a priority. I might just let it slide because when I'm in the mode of like going through these sessions, like I'm looking for high priority things. This is like that idea of like a rabbit hole, right? Like progress for the sake of progress and shipping for the sake of shipping. If you're just putting out small fixes all of the time, if they're not super important or users don't actually care about them, they don't really, they're not noticed and they don't add up to much. But if someone is not able to do something in the product that they should be able to do, right? Like something's broken, that's something that needs yep. to be fixed. The whole, yeah, the whole backlog thing is really tough. It's like, we have all this research. We're not going to act on it now. Some of it we are, what do we do with it? Um, you know, Maggie, we, we were talking about drift before in the um, story, story time. We had talked with, with her about that on an earlier episode. Um, but she'd done an oh, episode yeah. recently on just like kill your backlog, which is, you know, really compelling and scary. It's like, ah, what do we do with all this stuff that we know we should do? Yeah, because if I mean, I feel like if a backlog is too emphasized, like you might come to like 
right? So like at Endeavor, right? Like if we, like I work on a team of engineers and, and a product person who we're like, what we work on is obviously client facing. Uh, but then we have an engineering team that's like kind of solely working on like the back end and kind of like DevOps and these other things. And if we're working on something and we need some of their support and we go to them and we're like, Hey, like we need X, Y, and Z. And like, this is sort of our time frame. And if they're, if they, if their answer, it's not, but if their answer was, um, Oh, well, you know, we have this backlog and it's like, well, like that's not a great answer. Right. Because it's, it's blocking our team from doing things and, and, not that, you know, I don't like the agile framework of working, but product teams do need to be agile and kind of adapt to each other's needs and be supportive. Um, and backlogs just become this like weird, like order of mm-hmm. like marching, like we're marching in this direction and we're just going down this list. And why are we doing this? We don't know anymore, but this is how we do it. Right. Like there's never really a good reason for, 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 over-indexing on the things in a backlog. And a lot of times, some of the things that end up in there, right? Like ultimately they're not that important and they never come up again. So why would you fix something when that's low priority when there's, you know, six or seven things, high priority that are blocking users that typically are floating around? Right. The the tricky bit is, you know, making sure those things that do come up over and over again get surfaced in the absence of a backlog. Do you have a good system for that? Um, I'm, I'm just like a Trello queen. I have lots of Trello boards and, um, if something is really like, I usually only have like two or three things that I'm focused on in like my left column and then everything else to the right, I don't even pay attention to. And if that column is empty and I have nothing to add into it, like I'm constantly pruning it. Like I might add some things that I want to look at, but if it's something that's going to be revisited within the next couple of weeks and it might change anyway, I just, I just delete it all. One of the things I do when I'm designing, like if I'm, if I'm revisiting something and we have a little bit of space to evolve it. I always ask myself the question, like, if none of this was here, what would I do? And a lot of times some of the answers like are the same as what's already there. And, and sometimes it's not. Um, and if I can just forget about my backlog and forget about like the restrictions that I have, it allows me to kind of innovate mm-hmm. and, and design a little bit better versus trying to like, you know, fit five pounds of apples in a, in a, three pound bag. Yeah. I think some sort of like expiration date on like stuff in the backlog is like a nice balance where, you know, an issue comes up, you can log it, but if nobody touches it or comments on it in the next two months or whatever, it just disappears. Right. And then like the ones that to Aaron's point keep coming up or keep getting additional information added to them, stick around. Um, and then the ones that don't just get like naturally pruned out kind of feels like, you know, maybe a nice middle ground. So you mentioned that like you guys have a whole bunch of research in a backlog and obviously like user interviews as a platform is still like pretty new. Like I remember, I mean, I remember talking to your CEO, like maybe five years ago when you were just getting started. Um, so, I mean, you guys have done this like kind of homegrown from inception thing. What types of things are you doing to test and like, how do you, how are you guys keeping track of, of the most high priority things that need to get done? Um, for passive stuff, like, you know, like you know, insights you learn either through customer support or whatever. Um, we've deployed a product board for that. And so it is a little bit of like you let stuff pile up, right? Like somebody said they had trouble messaging or somebody had trouble with this rescheduling feature um, or somebody asked how this works. And we can kind of organize them around themes or to specific parts of the app um, with the idea being that we don't like take action on all those things, but it's more of like, you get kind of a heat map of like where comments are coming up. Like, Oh, we're getting a lot of comments around scheduling or Mm -hmm. like, Oh, we're getting a lot of comments around this. Um, 
So it's not like an exact like marching order. And it's like, we don't, you know, it's not the only way we prioritize things. So it's not like we just go like what has the most smoke around it, like do that next. But it's like a really nice input. And then when you do decide to work on something in there, you can click into it and like read all the comments that you've associated with it. And so you get this kind of like pretty rich, like quick context of people when they're doing this are thinking about this or, you know, like you get all this kind of like just richness that is just off the shelf. So it's not like a backlog in the sense of it's not like a bunch of features or designs or whatever that we're committed to doing, but it's more of just like organized snippets from users in kind of like logical groupings that we can go back and parse when we're, uh, when we decide to work in an area. So that's been like the biggest thing that we've probably done, um, Mm -hmm. over the last, you know, two years or whatever. Yeah. Right. And it probably helps you very quickly, like get caught up on like why this thing matters in the first place. It's good. Yeah. It's a lot of, um, qualitative contextual data too. It's, pretty useful. Yeah. Um, like for, for a real example, um, when you create a project on our site right now, you can't add any of your teammates to it to like help you out with it, which we know is a huge pain point. Um, and so we're working on that now. And when, um, when we started it and we kicked it off with the developers, we're like, Hey, just like everybody read through these like 70 comments we have from people who've expressed like frustration or a pain point here just to like internalize that. And that was like, you know, what we did on day one with the engineers. Um, and it's super helpful because like, it really runs the gamut. Some of it is just like, Hey, I just take screenshots and just like slack them to my teammate. Like I just need people to be able to see it. Like that's all I need. And it's like a pretty low bar. And then other people are like, I need somebody who can come in and actually like edit it and like make other changes or I want somebody to be able to comment on it. And so then we get to start to like parse out, you know, like what is, what is the right solution? And then we can actually go talk to those people too, since we know who said what and all that. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd.